If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. From grisly medieval punishments to the justice doled out to celebrity criminals in the Victorian era, public executions were a spectacle that shaped the landscape of London for centuries. It's a history that's explored in a new exhibition at the Museum of London Docklands. And I spoke to the exhibition's lead curator, Beverly Cook, to find out more. To start us off, why did you want to do an exhibition on public executions? Why are they so important to the history of London? Well, public executions have really been embedded in London's culture and society and landscape for hundreds of years Um, Our exhibition actually covers a 700-year period uh, from 1196 to 1868, when, of course, that was the last public execution. And if you think over that 700-year period, not just how many executions took place in London during that time, but how many Londoners witnessed those executions. And that's something that we're really interested in focusing on, not just the executions themselves, which, of course, were for want of a better phrase, public demonstrations of state violence, but also how Londoners felt about them and how they became very much part of their society, the culture and the landscape in which they were living. So, of course, you're using a range of artefacts and artworks to reveal this story, to offer a window into the world of public executions. Can you give us a sense of the range of objects that you've got on display? Yes, well, the exhibition follows six chapters. Um, The first chapter looks at different methods of execution. So obviously we tend to think of things like the gallows um, and beheading, but also some of the lesser known forms of public execution like boiling, which was rarely used but um, is something that was seen in London. Um, And then chapter two looks at um, London as a city of gallows. That's what it was often known as. And I think people might be really surprised to know that, um, you know, we tend to think of places like Tyburn and Newgate and perhaps Smithfield 
when we think of public executions in London. But there are so many smaller sites um, that perhaps people are not aware of. In Chapter 3, we're um, looking at um, how people prepared for execution um, and the process of rushed justice um, the um, things like, you know, how trials only might have taken a few days um, and then people were condemned and then very often executed very quickly after. We have um, these really wonderful petitions for mercy that uh, were very quickly got together by friends, relatives um, and also perhaps influential people to try and um, get a stay of execution for the condemned. And often these were really successful. And they're actually really powerful objects. We have one in the exhibition that was um, related to a, um, a, re- a petition for mercy for a young man called Joseph Harwood. And he was a humble seller of washing lines his father had died. He was not really part of what you refer to as the criminal class, um, but he was convicted of a highway robbery and his mother signed his petition for mercy with a very simple cross. Um, unfortunately, his petition was not successful and he went to the gallows, but we do also have petitions in the display that were successful. We also have in that section some last letters uh, that were written from the condemned cell. They're quite surprising, really. They were letters that you might think were saying things like, oh, say goodbye to my wife, my mother, and things like that. But often other letters in that collection that are on display are saying things like, oh, can we have a bottle of wine, please, in the condemned cell the night before our execution? (laughs) And then we move into chapter four, um, which is looking at the day of execution. And obviously, we have things like the removing of the irons from uh, from the prisoners. We have some um, leg irons in our collection that are on display that came from directly from Newgate, so potentially could have been used on those that were about to be executed. And perhaps one of my favourite objects is the Newgate debtor's door that we have. And that was the last door that the condemned walked through on their way to execution at Newgate. So a really powerful object. And of course, Newgate prison itself was a very imposing building. And um, you can imagine how it must have felt for those about to be executed to leave that door and know it was the last door that they were going to be walking through before their execution. Section five is looking at very much what happens to the executed after death. And probably my favourite object here is a really sweet little print of Sarah Whitehead. And she was also known as the bank nun. And this is a really sad little story in that um, her brother was executed for forgery and fraud. And he was an employee at the Bank of England. And after his execution, every day for 40 years, she would go to the bank and ask for him. And she became known as the bank nun, and she was a, became a very familiar character around the city of London. We also deal with the quite uncomfortable, I suppose, um, subjects of dissection, um, the dissection of bodies, and also the gibbeting of bodies. And we have a gibbet on display from our own collections. And then chapter six uh, looks at the decline of public executions and 
why that happened. You know, what what was it in 1868 that finally led to the end of public executions? Um, And of course, then their removal behind closed doors in prisons like Pentonville and Holloway. So a huge wealth of material there that clearly you've got in the exhibition. I wonder if now you could take us both back to the scene of a London public execution. You can choose the time and the place, perhaps. But if me and you had turned up to see an execution day, what would we have encountered? If we had turned up to watch an execution at Newgate from 1783, which is when they moved from Tyburn to Newgate, we would have been struck by, um, in the early hours of the morning, if we were there at that time, we would have seen uh, the scaffolders and the builders arrive to actually construct um, the scaffold and the gallows. In uh, the Newgate gallows was not a permanent structure. If you can imagine, Newgate was in a very crowded part of London, uh, near the what we now know as the Old Bailey. Um, And it was this huge, imposing building, this prison that was, um, you know, one of London's landmarks. And it would have been impossible to have kept the the scaffold and the gallows as a permanent fixture. And also, by 1783, executions were not taking place that often. They were only taking place eight times a year um, after the sessions at the Old Bailey. Um, And um, so there wouldn't have been any need for a permanent structure. Um, But from the early hours, the scaffolding would have been created. The trapdoor would have been um, erected. You know, it would have probably been tested to make sure that the latch was working. Um, And then you would have seen a build up of street traders, people setting out their pitch, um, like the pie men execution broadside sellers would be starting to arrive with the execution broadsides that had been printed the night before, assuming that the people in the condemned cell were actually going to be then executed, which was never always a guarantee. And then the crowds would start to gather. And for a big high profile crime or criminal perhaps up to 50,000 people would try and cram themselves into this very small crowded space in front of the prison. And obviously that meant that people were sort of not just in front of the gallows, but in all the surrounding streets, um, just sort of being brought together by this spectacle, if you like, of what they were about to see. And of course it was very much regarded as a sort of theatrical um, experience for those who witnessed public executions. As you mentioned, the crowd is something that you want to look at in this exhibition. The behaviour of turning up to see someone executed seems quite alien to us today, um, to say the least. How do you view the crowds? How do you think we should understand them? Were they really as, as bloodthirsty or perhaps blasé about grisliness as, you know, is often portrayed? There were a lot of different people in the crowd for a lot of different reasons, as in any crowd. You know, London, it's very easy for a crowd to gather in London (laughs) and we can't assume that everyone has the same reasons or motives for being in that crowd. It's always said that the crowd of an execution was similar to the crowd that would have gone to see a Drury Lane theatrical production. It crossed social barriers 
So, for example, if you were slightly wealthier, you would have been able to hire a seat or hire a view from a nearby building. Um, if you were uh, less wealthy, you would have had to have joined the crowd and taken your chances that you might be able to see something. It's always um, said that apprentices were always often very well represented at executions. And bizarrely, apprentices often found themselves on the wrong side of the law and executed themselves. And it was said um, during one of the parliamentary debates about the um, abolition of public executions that um, every apprentice that was executed had also witnessed an execution. So it obviously wasn't working as a deterrent. And the other thing that's often said about the crowd is that it attracted people like pickpockets Well, the answer to that as well is that there must have been people in the crowd who had pockets worth pinching. Um, So it had a really broad um, range. And we know that people like Dickens and Thackeray attended public executions for a range of reasons, Um, often to say they were just observing the crowd behaviour. But, um, you know, obviously it was something they felt compelled to go and witness. You referred earlier to London as the city of gallows. I wonder if you could tell us a bit more about how these execution sites sat within the city, how they were kind of integrated in daily life. Yeah, well, it's quite interesting because we tend to think of Tyburn and Newgate as the only places where people were executed, uh, particularly in the 18th and 19th century. But if you look further back, obviously we have places like Smithfield, where a lot of heretics and um, uh, rebels and traitors were executed. And that's often because if you think of some of the open areas of London, Smithfield was a wide open area. Um, It was also a market area. So it was quite an appropriate area to have an execution site because they often required a lot of space. Um, But we also have um, what we call crime sites, And some people were actually executed by where they committed their crime. Um, Sarah Malcolm, who was known as the Irish Laundress, is a a prime example of that. And and she was um, convicted of um, murdering or being involved in the murder of three people in Temple Chambers where she worked as a laundress. And it was decided that because her crime was so horrific, she would actually be executed close to the site of where she committed her crime. And that was not unusual. So she was executed in Fleet Street in the view of Temple Chambers where she committed her crime. Rioters were often also um, executed where they were rioting. And, of course, this was regarded as a bit of a deterrent. You know, this was the state saying, actually, you know, if, if you riot against us, This is what happens to you. And rioters often came from quite localised areas in London, as they do today. So if you can imagine, a gallows was quickly erected to execute rioters um, to sort of stop and prevent further rioting in that particular area. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. And one of the things that really strikes me about Eliza is that she went to her execution in a white muslin dress. And really, for me, that's sort of like, it's sort of visible signs of her innocence in a way. 
This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You said earlier about how some criminals became essentially celebrities and there was a great appetite for crime stories. Can you tell us a bit about the the popular culture that sprang up around public executions? So I'm thinking here of things like broadside ballads and stories and plays and that side of things. Yeah, well, I suppose I suppose the most obvious um, form of popular culture associated with public executions is Punch and Judy. Because if you think about it, you know, this wasn't originally a story for children. This was a story about Punch, um, a wife beater, murderer, um, actually um, going to his execution and cheating the executioner. So in the end, the executioner ends up with the noose around his own neck and Punch escapes. So for me, that is the most significant form of popular culture. The site of the gallows was very much embedded in the collective consciousness of society and Londoners. Execution ballads, execution broadsides um, were really a, a very much a way of many Londoners were earning their living through public executions. And execution broadsides really didn't have the same impact or the same financial impact uh, for Londoners once um, executions went behind closed doors. We're actually having in the exhibition a a 2021 rendition of a 1707 execution ballad of an execution of a a robber called um, Jack Hall. And that's really interesting because execution ballads are still really popular uh, with folk singers. Um, They're very poignant, they're very emotive, and they still continue to have um, a popularity and relevance to society today. And taking that even further, is the practice of taking relics from those who were executed. What can you tell us about that and some of the relics that we can still find in archives today? After execution, bodies could have been removed from uh, by families if no families or friends arrived then the bodies were often buried at the site of execution from 1752 and the murder act um, of that year uh, the bodies of murderers were allowed uh, to be uh, collected by the royal college of surgeons and be dissected So obviously, um, you know, there were various ways in which um, the relics of the actual physical bodies could be kept. And then there were other things around that. Uh, For example, in the exhibition, we have this wonderful bedsheet that is embroidered in human hair. Um, And uh, that was a bedsheet that was used by James Radcliffe, the Earl of Derwentwater, the Jacobite rebel, Um, when he was incarcerated in the Tower of London before his execution. 
and it was embroidered in human hair by his widow. And we're not quite sure um, where the hair came from, but it appears that it seems as if it's from two different heads. So it's possible that she removed some hair from her husband um, and she removed her own hair. And then she did this really fine embroidery uh, to say that this was the bedsheet that lay on her beloved's bed whilst he was in the Tower of London. And this bedsheet became a symbol of Anne of Derwentwater's mourning, her grieving. But because as a Jacobite rebel, James was Catholic, it also became a symbol of his Catholic martyrdom. Um, so that's why this bedsheet has survived, because it became so much embedded in um, his martyrdom as a, as a Catholic rebel. Another object I wanted to ask you about was a painting, and it depicts a scene in which a man called Henry Fauntleroy is about to go to his execution. What can you tell us about his story? Henry Fauntleroy was actually a really interesting story. He was 39. He was a partner in a private bank in Marylebone. And for probably years and years, he was defrauding um, the Bank of England and other banks to get money. And the story grew up that um, was he doing this because he had a very lavish lifestyle, lots of women falling at his feet, or was he doing it to keep and prop up his bank? He was caught, he was convicted, and he was sent to be executed. And his case actually caused quite a stir in the community and within society, partly because he was regarded as a gentleman, So he wasn't part of the criminal classes that people weren't quite so bothered about. And uh, this was also still at the time of what we refer to as the bloody code, where crimes such as forgery and fraud were um, subject to to execution. If you were convicted of those crimes, then execution was was, um, something that you were condemned to. And so there was a big public outcry against the execution of Henry Fauntleroy, partly because of his standing in society as a partner of a bank, but also because there was growing concern about the fact that people were being executed for crimes such as fraud and forgery. His condemning to a public death um, led to big petitions in his favour, but also in favour of the abolition of um, execution for these crimes. Unfortunately, the petitions didn't work and he was executed. But this is a high-profile execution, and that's one of the reasons why it was recorded so beautifully in an artwork. Fortnoy's story is just one of many that you look at and you share. Um, Are there any other stories that really captured your imagination or you think tell us something interesting about what was going on with the nature of public execution and what it meant to Londoners at the time? I think for me obviously the exhibition features some very high profile public executions including the beheading of Charles I but for me it's the unknown stories that are the most interesting ones the ones that um, it's so 
nice in a way to bring to the public knowledge the unknown Londoners who um, dealt with um, public execution in such a dignified way um, and often were very much victims of rushed justice or miscarriages of justice. And one of those engaging stories that um, we are privileged to bring to the public in the exhibition is that of Eliza Fenning. Eliza Fenning was a young girl. She was only 22 uh, when she was um, accused and convicted of the attempted murder of um, the people in the household that she worked for. She was convicted of adding arsenic to dumplings um, in an attempt to poison them. And her case, again, a little bit like Fauntleroy's, attracted huge attention, but for slightly different reasons. It it was regarded that some of the um, evidence against her was very dubious. Um, Convictions, trials were very, very quick. They often took a few days. Um, Juries were expected to reach verdicts, often within 15 minutes. And this was something that Eliza Fenning was facing. Um, She was really vulnerable to this. She didn't have a lot of influential friends or family um, or supporters to help her with petitions of mercy. And she very sadly was publicly executed. And one of the things that really strikes me about Eliza is that she went to her execution in a white muslin dress. And really, for me, that's sort of like, it's sort of visible signs of her innocence in a way. And after her death, her body was taken by her family. It was um, removed and taken home. And so many people came to visit her in death again, as if they were very sad about her case and that they felt that a miscarriage of justice had had happened here. And even her funeral was a really grand affair for someone who was so humble and her coffin was carried by six girls in white muslin dresses. So a really tragic story here and um, a story that I didn't know about, you know, one of these unknown stories of a Londoner whose death really was hugely significant at the time and would have been known throughout London, um, but is now sadly forgotten. So it's just a real privilege to bring these hidden stories to life. So when did opposition to individual cases like you've described there become something bigger? When did the kind of tidal wave of opposition to public execution take hold? Well, there'd been opposition to public executions for a long time, um, for centuries. Um, People like Henry Fielding, for example, in the 18th century uh, were very concerned about the sort of parade and the spectacle of public executions. But there wasn't really a huge public appetite for abolition until we entered the Victorian period. And all of a sudden, Victorians with a stricter moral code became more squeamish about public pain, um, seeing anything happen in public in a way, you know, everything had to happen behind closed doors in the Victorian period, you know. Um, It was thought to be really uh, bad to to have this sort of public demonstrations of punishment and um, people suffering and in pain. Uh, But alongside that 
There was also other reasons why we see the decline of public executions. Uh, One of them was penal reform, Uh, the building of prisons that were suitable for detention rather than just holding areas for people who were going to be um, executed made a huge difference because these prisons were meant to be um, not just places of detention but also places for reforming criminals. This idea that actually you could reform criminals started to become um, more common and um, something that most people started to believe in. We also see the founding of the Metropolitan Police Service and obviously um, the police were starting to arrest more people and if everyone they arrested went to trial and was convicted and then executed, London would have been an absolute bloodbath. And we also see the um, availability of uh, transportation, which, of course, had a huge impact because transporting criminals who were previously condemned to death out to Australia um, and before that America was seen almost in a way as bad a punishment as um, as execution. So there were lots of alternatives to public execution suddenly appearing as well as the Victorian squeamishness and opposition to this idea of public pain and public suffering not being acceptable uh, within a modern society anymore. That was curator Beverly Cook. The Executions exhibition runs at the Museum of London Docklands until the 16th of April 2023. You can find out more at museumoflondon.org.uk. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. 